1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And as we promised last time, we are back with part two of our Halloween hangover listener mail. We're not usually going to be doing a two-part listener mail back-to-back like this, but there was a lot of great stuff that came in over the October season related to our Monster Science episodes, and we're also just... Using a little help, I think, to get through the Thanksgiving week here.
0: Yeah, American Thanksgiving is, is hell. There's no uh, denying it. Uh, and we have a number of different things uh, cooking here. We, of course, we're continuing to pump out stuff to blow your mind. But we also have the Invention podcast launching next month. And we've been researching and uh, uh, writing and recording these episodes so we can start uh, dishing
1: those up. So definitely keep an eye out for that. Speaking of strange technology and contraptions, I have noticed that Carney is uh, not only still haunted. Last time we discussed a little bit how he's, he's got a ghost in the machine thing going mm-hmm. on and his gears are moaning in the, in the night winds a little bit. But have you noticed also a slight elongation of his mouth antennae?
0: Oh, yes. I, I never was sure why he had those installed to begin with, but now they are definitely pronounced.
1: Yeah, they're almost becoming fang-like in appearance. One could wonder if he is undergoing a transformation to robot vampirism. <laughs> that may be the case.
0: Um, oh, before we get going here, too, I want to uh, remind everybody, hey, check out our Tee Public store. That's where you can find some merchandise for the show. There's a store tab at the top of our homepage at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's the best way to get to it. Uh, we have a number of uh, cool bits of merchandise, uh, logo designs, but also episode-centric divi- d- designs, including, I am told, there should be some new squirrel-based merchandise in there for you, some nice dark scug. Uh, uh, content for you to have put on a a shirt or a mug or a sticker or what have you, as well as a potential uh, holiday Great Basilisk shirt. So uh, get excited about those. Check those out because uh, buying merchandise like this, it's a cool way to support the show. Uh, And of course, if you don't want to spend money uh, supporting the show, you can also uh, uh, help us out for free by
1: simply reviewing the show wherever you have the power to do so. Yeah, so merch up or give us some stars. Now, should we jump right into our first bit of listener mail from Joshua? Let's do it. Okay. This concerned our episode about monster slayers, the slayer tradition. So Joshua writes in to say, Hi, I'm a first-time listener, and I just heard your episode, The Slayer. I studied ancient Near Eastern myth and the Hebrew Bible at the University of Chicago. So imagine my surprise when the first episode I heard focused on the myths that I love. You did an amazing job discussing the stories and my only correction is that the second A in I guess what I pronounced Akkadian is pronounced with the long A like hey. So that would be Akkadian. And I guess this, of course, refers to the ancient Mesopotamian culture, the the Akkadians. Uh, So Joshua continues, there is one thing particularly interesting about the Enuma Elish. And this is, of course, the ancient Mesopotamian creation epic where uh, you've got the the battle between Marduk and the, the sea dragon Tiamat. Joshua writes, there is one thing particularly interesting about the Enuma Elish that I wanted to tell you about. Tiamat, the monster who is slain in the story, is the sea goddess. The hero who slays her is the storm god. When he slays her, he summons his winds. You remember the evil wind, Robert. Mm -hmm. Uh, She swallows them and then he shoots an arrow at her belly and she pops like a balloon. This causes her body to be cut in half and dry ground appears on which we live. In the creation story in the Bible, before anything existed, there was just a chaotic void, Tohu and Vohu. God created the heavens and the earth by gathering together all the waters from that void and then separating them to let dry ground appear. When we picture the biblical creation story within the context of our cosmology, we tend to picture a puddle of water floating in space. Then a hole appears in the middle and dry ground rises from the hole in the puddle. But in the context of ancient Near Eastern cosmology, it's better to picture outer space as nothing but water. Think of an aquarium filled with water floating dead center in the middle of the aquarium is an upside down glass bowl with a lid we live in the bowl standing on the underside of the lid everything outside the bowl is water this is why the hebrew word raqia means both sky and a solid hammered surface i think huh. this is where we sort of get the idea of the firmament right yeah. that there's like a a solid surface up in the sky that you could walk around on observationally this works from the perspective of a person standing on the bowl's lid the sky is the color of water because there's water up there the sky reaches down to the horizon if you drill into the earth you find water and if you go far enough on land you find the terrible chaotic primordial water the ocean This explains why the storm god was often the chief god. Storms weren't events when the storm god caused destruction for humans and needed to be placated so he wouldn't wipe us out. Instead, they were battles when the primordial waters above started falling back down, threatening to fill the bowl. The storm god used the strength of his winds to reinflate the bowl, pushing the primordial waters back up above the solid sky, keeping the bowl open for us to live in. Perhaps it's counterintuitive for us with our cosmology, but in the cosmology of the ancient Near East, humanity should thank the storm god for constantly inflating the bowl and saving us all from drowning. So in my mind, the point of the Enuma Elish was to tell the Akkadians, don't be afraid of terrifying storms. Instead, you should fear the day when the waters fall and there is no storm, because that will be the day when it all comes crashing in again. I could go on, but this is too long already. Anyway, great job, and I'm excited to keep listening. Thanks. Now, Robert, this raises uh, – this is a fantastic email, by the way. I, I love all this insight on the uh, ancient Near Eastern cosmology. Uh, and, and this fits pretty well with a lot of what I've read about, uh, about their kind of view of the shape of the cosmos and stuff. But one of the things that I hadn't considered before is that given all of this, should we in fact picture the events of the Enuma Elish somehow happening underwater? Like if the Earth hadn't been created yet, if there wasn't yet an inflated bowl, was this all somehow under the primordial total ocean of the void? Maybe
0: this is why the deep sea peril movies of the uh, of the nineties resonated so is that they're they kind of connect with a primordial cosmology the the, the idea that our existence is essentially a deep sea habitat. <laughs>
1: I like that. Or wait, are you talking about the '90s or the 19 like 88, 89 underwater? Oh wait, it was more
0: like 89, yeah, 89. But, but the the enthusiasm and the VHS uh, enthusiasm, of course, spills
1: over there, R- right? Yeah. Okay, you're talking the Abyss, Leviathan, Deep Star Six, mm-hmm. Lords of the Deep, all that. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I, same, I know that's your jam. Because essentially, all those story- tales are in-
0: encapsulated um, versions of the surface world uh-huh. uh, beneath the deep.
1: Yeah, uh, and and but that, they're also the stories about space. They're like t- mm-hmm. They, Leviathan is just alien underwater in a way. Right. Again, making the connection between the ocean and, and the space beyond. Very nice. I love this. No, I'm thinking of some obvious reasons that my, my guess about the Enuma Elish here doesn't really make sense because obviously there are winds. And so like there wouldn't be winds underwater, would there be? Well, but there are winds underwater in a sense. We do have tides and currents. currents and, I guess. Uh, And of course, we also have the movements
0: and and, uh, migrations of marine species. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not that all of that would necessarily
1: be known to ancient peoples, but some of it would be, especially if they were seafaring. Well, I also think about the deep sea braving nature of other ancient Mesopotamian heroes. Like if you think of the epic of Gilgamesh, one of the Mm -hmm. feats that Gilgamesh does is he walks down to the bottom of the ocean to get like some kind of sacred plant he needs. I can't remember quite why he needs it, but he needs a plant down there. So he just like walks down to the bottom of the sea, gets it, and he comes back up. Hmm. Well of course we've all, that reminds me of
0: uh, of some of our discussions in the Ancient Aliens episodes oh yeah uh, about um,
1: about the idea that uh, first contact uh, occurs with some sort of entity that arises from the deep oh yeah so this was something Carl Sagan talked about mm-hmm. in his work uh, now of course like us Carl Sagan did not credit the idea of ancient aliens didn't believe in uh, you know the Eric Von Däniken ideas and right. stuff like that but he was asking the question of okay if earthlings had been contacted in the past by ancient aliens, what would the evidence look like? And the closest thing he and his co-author thought they could come up with was this uh, – I don't remember. Was it Sumerian? I think it might have been like a retelling of some Sumerian epic or something. It was some ancient Near Eastern epic about the, these beings that came up out of the water and brought culture to the people. Oh, What was the name of that,
0: that entity again?
1: Uh, uh, Oh, Oanes. Oh,
0: yes. Uh, yes. Adapa, I think. Yeah. I just love that. I find the the, the mythic
1: image of it all all the more haunting. Yeah, uh, that's great stuff. Anyway, well, thank you, Joshua. That was an awesome piece of listener mail, and we really appreciate uh, the clarification of the shape of the world. Now, should we explore another uh, response to the Slayer episode from maybe this one from our listener, Taylor? Yes, this was another great piece of listener mail.
0: Taylor writes, hello, Robert and Joe. I absolutely love the Monster Slayer episode. I really like how you tied in the fear and courage aspects of the episode. I would like to share a personal experience of how a fictional tale of heroics can really
1: change the way you respond to a threat or whatever is generating the fear response. I, we actually asked that question in the episode, like mm-hmm. it, whether there's any evidence that thinking about her, mythical heroics makes you more courageous. and." We didn't find any evidence or, like, research on that, but it sounds like Taylor has an anecdote here.
0: Yes. Uh, Taylor continues, I am a combat veteran and served in Operation Enduring Freedom in Afghanistan. We were relieving a unit that was taking heavy casualties and they were withdrawn. In their stead, we took on the task of finishing what they had started, and I will spare the details of the actual mission. I was a combat engineer, and I would sometimes spearhead infantry platoons uh, with a handheld mine detector sweeping for explosive hazards. I have to say fear was part of an everyday phenomenon that I experienced. And when I was mind-sweeping for improvised explosive devices uh, and old anti-personnel mines, I was especially fearful. But I had to somehow overcome this fear in order to complete my role in the mission. The whole time, I could only think of what I was doing to prevent a catastrophe from taking place by detecting these hazards, and I actually recalled the heroics of the old Lord of the Rings series to give me a boost in courage. We had a laptop that we watched movies on and had watched all three Lord of the Rings uh, films several times. Many acts of bravery took place in those stories, but some stuck with me. Boromir's sacrifice was one, and Ewan was another, I personally had always felt a small part of guilt for taking part in a war I knew little about. Albeit, I joined the army to pay for school, and I didn't realize the actual reality of deploying. For some reason, my morals had always led me to believe that war was inherently wrong. The guilt had always played a role in my fear to die for a reason I did not fully understand. What was I contributing to humanity by being part of all this? I felt a little helpless, and I took myself out of the big picture and downsized to my immediate circumstances, which were my fellow humans. If I were to die, then let it be for my fellow humans, the ones I was sharing this unfortunate experience with. For some reason, I could clearly recount Eowyn's bravery against Sauron. She was no superhuman or legendary warrior, but just a human woman who only wanted to protect those she loved. Her love for her friends and family gave her the courage to overcome Sauron and stab him in the face. Sauron, to me, was acting like a metaphor for these destructive devices, some placed by Taliban soldiers and others left from previous wars. Like Sauron, these things laid in wait for the right moment, then afflicted terrible destruction on those who came across them. These things did not discriminate and killed not only soldiers in the war, but also helpless locals. I used these fantastical stories of bravery to help me through some of my ordeal in Afghanistan. And even though I knew they were all fictional characters, they they had played a vital role in inspiring me to face my own fears and overcome them. Sorry for the long response, but it felt good to share these considering I don't get to talk about it much. Thanks for the wonderful episode, and I look forward to the rest of October's podcast. Cheers from Alaska.
1: Well, Taylor, thank you so much for getting in touch. These were really some uh, some fascinating insights. I don't know if I've ever heard that directly. It seems like a kind of common thing to be inspired by heroics from stories to to do something actually, you know, requiring of courage in real life. But I can't think of examples other than what Taylor has just given us here. Well, what I love about this example is, of course, that it's it's from a combat scenario. So yeah. it's
0: a thing that, uh, you know, I, I don't have any personal experience with. But, it, but it, of course, it's always great to hear from our listeners who do because mm-hmm. they can put new twists on uh, topics such as this.
1: And uh, it's actual physical courage, by the way. I mean, a lot of the kind of courage I was thinking about people needing in that episode was more mundane day-to-day courage. Like, you know, if you have a fear of public speaking, you've got to somehow get up the guts to do it Mm -hmm. for a work scenario or something like that. Uh, Or, you know, those kind of mundane things. But here you're actually talking about putting your life on the line.
0: Yeah. And I, I also like the idea of associating Sauron with just sort of the... The, the, the nature of war, you know, like yeah. he's – it's ultimately what the the great enemy is all about.
1: Now, at the risk of being doubly wrong, I think some of our more nitpicky listeners might say, I think the character – uh, Taylor is thinking about there is the Witch-king of Angmar who gets stabbed in the face by Aowen. Is that not the case? I believe that is the case. Yeah, because that looks a, exactly yeah. like I mean is uh, one of Sauron's uh, generals or whatever. Yeah.
0: I mean in a sense it, stabbing the Witch-king in the face is like Sauron, stabbing Sauron in the face. Yeah, you know? what are you going to do? Climb that tower and stab the eye? That yeah. doesn't make sense. Yeah, there's no face for stabbing there. So <laughs> uh, but we know we knew what uh, what Taylor was
1: talking about. Here. Yeah, sorry. I did not mean to nitpick. Uh, th- th- <laughs> this is a great story. Yeah, and it ties in
0: because We are going to have other listener mails in this episode that involve the Lord of the Rings.
1: Oh, that's right. Yeah, man, we have got so many excellent pedantic Tolkien nerds out there. Uh, I just had to say that or I knew that we would get a flood of listener mail. about like, (laughs) that wasn't Sauron. We love you. We love you. Anyway, thank you so much, Taylor. Uh, And uh, yeah, feel free to get in touch again. Okay, our next uh, piece of listener mail comes from Zolt. Uh, Zolt says, Hello, Robert and Joe. And this is also about the Slayer, by the way. Uh, I was writing to you about one part of the recent Monster Slayer episode. In the episode you mentioned that babies have been shown to be afraid of spiders and snakes and that's a type of fear that sticks around unlike the fear from bears or other predators. I don't really have any proof of my idea, it just makes sense to me intuitively. If a baby or a youngster is left alone in nature for a while or just not looked after that closely by the parents and it is afraid of snakes and spiders it has a survival advantage. If a venomous snake comes along and the baby picks it up and tries to chew on it, it will most likely get bitten, highly reducing its chance of survival. So fear of snakes or spiders being hardwired even in infancy can increase the survival rates of young humans and animals. On the other hand if a bear wolf or lion or any other large predator comes along the baby has no advantage if it is afraid of them obviously if the baby doesn't make any noise it has a higher chance of not being noticed but that would require a higher more specific type of recognition to differentiate between large predators or members of its own species or even its parents based on limited information and babies are not really known for being uh, quiet when it would be ideal so being inherently afraid of bears doesn't give infants much much survival advantage, so it wouldn't develop uh, evolutionarily, and it wouldn't get hardwired into our brains. Anyways, just an idea. Keep up the good work, and greetings from Hungary. Uh, I can maybe see what you're talking. That's a possibility to consider. Like that, um, uh, you know, the question is like, why snakes and spiders specifically, especially when they're not the most threatening animals out there. Mm-hmm. And the idea could be that if this is a, a hardwired instinct. Kind of fear instead of a learned cultural fear taught by the parents, then that could be advantageous to very young children because, well, I mean, for one thing, because those animals are not predatory. So they would not be usually seeking to like attack a baby. It would be more like if the baby stumbles across them that they would be dangerous. They they would need to know to leave it alone. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, Whereas like a leave it alone instinct just wouldn't really matter in the case of a large predator that wants to eat you because you're not going to get away from it. And
0: get and if they were to get away from it, it would be. It would be the domain of the parents. They would be the ones who would have to what, uh, stick them into a cave or a tree or however it happened in Clan of the Cave Bear. Um, <laughs> I want to say it was what stuck her into some sort of an enclosure where the bear mm-hmm. could only scratch at her. Yeah. It's been a while since I've seen it. I've never seen that one. Basically the same idea that's explored, I think, in um, one of the
1: Ewok movies. Uh, oh, which one? Um, the one with uh, Wilford Brimley?
0: Maybe that's the one I've seen the most. I think maybe that's the one because that's the one where she loses her her parents and oh, uh, no. her, her entire family. They just kill off the entire family and bring in Wilfred Brimley. That's but horrible. But I think they 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 shove her into a tree trunk or something to save her from some wild
1: beast. Well, at least she got a consolation, Brimley. Yeah, uh, yeah. So that that's an interesting idea, Zolt. Yeah, I'd have to think about that. See see what some evidence for or against that would be. But yeah, we're, we're thinking about. Thanks. All right, on that note, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, more listener mail. All right, we're back. Okay, we got a big email covering several topics from our listener, Dan. Robert, do you want to read uh, part of that one? Sure. uh, I'm going to read – I'm just going to read parts of it,
0: and I'll explain why. Uh, But uh, Dan writes in and says, hello, Robert and Joe. Newish fan here. I found about your podcast uh, back in March of this year and have been listening to you since then, gorging myself on your mercifully vast back catalog, <laughs> heedless of date, like uh, Baker's gods, R. Scott Baker's gods, I scan your timeline as a single moment. <laughs> Before I get along, I just wanted to say I find you guys, and Prior Host too can't forget them, to be phenomenal, and wanted to thank you for being consistently insightful, well-researched, informative, and at times hilarious. Oh, thank you, Dan. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is, without a doubt, one of my top-tier podcasts. You guys bring science to the average person in a way few do, and will not, no doubt be Classed as one of the better methods of science communication and application to everyday life, uh, thought uh, and fiction of this generation of podcasters. Now, at this point in the email, um, Dan goes on to ask uh, and bring up a couple of uh, of issues uh, that have a lot to do with the specifics of R. Scott Baker's. Um, Second apocalypse saga uh-huh. uh, the you know the, the way the gods work in it, the way one might potentially take julian jane's uh, bicameral mind um hypothesis and sort of fold it into at least one aspect of baker's work uh I really enjoyed chatting with him about this, and it it makes me want to go back and maybe check out a few of these things again. Uh, in uh, in Baker's work. Uh, but uh, I do want to pick up uh, on his third point that he brought up in the uh, the listener mail. He says, moving on, I don't want to take up too much time, so I'll keep it simple. Way back in one of your episodes on space, not helpful, I know, uh, I think it's the moons of Jupiter or Saturn, sorry, you mentioned how you don't see slow-acting, slow-thinking monsters or aliens in fiction that often.
1: Oh, I think this was the moons of Saturn episode because we were talking about aliens that might live on the extremely cold moon of titan. Ah, right? that was uh, it. If they're in a cold environment, they might have a very slow metabolism and slow slow everything. Well, Dan goes on. He says, "I was reminded
0: of the watchers in William Hope Hodgson's The Nightland." Hmm. To summarize briefly, in The Nightland, the sun is dead, the stars are gone, and humanity survives within a gigantic miles-tall pyramid and is beset by monsters, both from billions of years of evolution in the endless dark, and of a supernatural variety. The five watchers are only quickly described and not well at the start of the novel. What is clear is that they are vast, seemingly mountainous beings that move on a time scale charitably described as geologic, slowly advancing upon the aforementioned Great Pyramid. They are also referred to as some of the most dire beings known to man, hinted at being the coordinating powers behind the otherworldly monsters within the land. They've been known about for millions of years, advancing slowly over the epics all that time. Later fan works extrapolate the Watchers and given various contextual clues within the book, have cobbled together an interesting handful of takes on these titans of the dark. The interpretations range uh, a fair bit, but my favorite was that they were gigantic colony creatures, the nightland itself possibly being a long dried ocean floor whose uh, life force has been summoned by demonic agencies. In essence, the Watchers are slowly growing mountains of demonically possessed coral, uh, ...incrementally inching toward humanity, presumably by growing towards the light uh, of their souls gathered in a single location. I figure that's a lot slower than the ints, <laughs> and certainly a monster to be afraid of, albeit in a more abstract fashion. Anyway, you guys rock, love the recent episodes on the Basilisk, and classics like Being Doomed to Repeat History, and especially The Science of It from last year. You guys do great work, and I look forward to many more years of having you dwell in my ears, secreting knowledge, and interesting connections." Take care and all the best. Well, I have never read this, Robert. Have you the the Nightlands? I have. It's been a it's been a while since I read it, uh, and I forgot about the Watchers. But the Nightlands is a is an awe inspiring early work like of uh, of, of post apocalyptic science fiction, mm-hmm. and it is it is a challenging book to read because it is is written in a very antiquated style. Uh-huh. Um. I, it's easy to, to grow frustrated with it. I know I grew frustrated with it when I read it uh, initially. I need to give it another rereading though because buried within uh, the, uh, at times, challenging prose, there are some just Fabulous, dark fantasy and sci-fi ideas, uh, a lot of it regarding, uh, again, as he described, the last redoubt, this enormous pyramid uh, in which uh, the last of humanity is, uh, is is living out its dying days uh, against the, the horrors of a dark, cold earth.
1: It's a great concept, and I especially love the idea of like a menacing coral <laughs> that yeah. is just – that's wonderful yeah I, w-
0: I wasn't familiar with any i I've, I've never read any fiction that kind of springboards off
1: of the nightlands uh-huh. so. oh wait was that was that from the fan fiction or the fan yeah I believe, okay. I believe
0: so, or not necessarily fan fiction, but just you know short stories that continue the tradition in the same way that a lot of uh, writers write in the within the mythos of h p Lovecraft. But I think that's one, of the, that's one of the the values of The Nightland is that there are these elements in there that are not necessarily given a lot of time. And you're like, wow, what is that about? Wait, don't tell me about this character's love story and his, <laughs> his pining for this
1: lost love. Tell me more about The Watchers and The Night. Well, yeah, I, I always love when somebody can come up with what feels like a truly original kind of monster mythos, something that isn't just like basically a variation on the vampire or something.
0: Yeah. Uh, but uh, again, the Nightland, William Hope, Hope Hodgson. It's out there. You can buy copies of it. It's it's on Kindle. Um, but it is it is a pretty it is an original work. There 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 are things about it that haven't been retrod uh, uh, in in fiction in the in the decades uh, since it came out. Uh, there's there's a lot of original wonder there to be had.
1: Okay, this next piece of mail comes from our listener uh, Michal or Michal, M-I-C-H-A-L. I'm not sure how you pronounce that. But uh, this is following up from the Vampire Clinic episodes. So I think I'm, I'm going to say Michal. Uh, so Mikal writes, uh, thanks for the great and creepy content this October. I was listening to your vampire podcast and I have uh, remembered a story that a guy I was working with a few years ago told me. Oh, I love a third-hand story from a guy you used to work with. <laughs> All right. Mikal writes, so I am Polish and uh, I've been living in a small Polish town almost my entire life. Growing up surrounded by woods, bogs, and misty riverbanks, and having a family which enjoys spooky folktales worked out really good for me. I mean, I like a decent scary story. But I'm getting a bit off topic. The guy I have mentioned uh, used to help out local archaeologists with their dig sites as a voluntary passion project. They have found a medieval graveyard once, which is located on a church land, but has been forgotten and discovered again by these archaeologists. My colleague told me that there were about 20 bodies buried in that cemetery, all ordinary skeletons, but one which belonged to a person people who buried him believed to be a vampire. That skeleton had his head chopped off and placed face down between the person's legs. Hands and ankles were tied behind his back and bound together. And here comes the creepy part. Oh, that wasn't creepy before? <laughs> yeah. Here comes the creepy part. The skull had a huge stone jammed into the mouth, jaws broken, and most of the front teeth bent backwards from the impact. Those were the kind of precautions Polish people used to take uh, to make sure no vampires will haunt and hunt them at night. I wish you all the best and hope you enjoyed my little vampire story, Mikal. Well, uh, Mikal, we've read about other stories. Like I think even in one of the episodes we mentioned brick-in-the-mouth vampire burials. I think
0: so, yeah. But I'm delighted to hear another uh, take on it though.
1: Yeah, there was – I think – Around the same week that our episodes came out, there was another story in the news about a new uh, brick-in-the-mouth vampire grave dis- – I almost say grampire <laughs> – vampire grave discovered somewhere. What Didn't we see that on our Facebook discussion module or something, Robert? I believe so, yeah. Anyway, y- yes, that is super creepy. So uh, thanks for sharing, mikal I love this legacy of graveyard
0: desecration and vampire prevention. Here's another free idea I'm throwing out there um, to the, the the cinema world. Everyone loves to remake uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the family in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is, is heavily into uh, the desecration of graves and corpses. Right. Somebody should do one where it's essentially the Chainsaw family versus vampires. And the whole reason they're raiding all of these surrounding uh, Texan uh, uh, graveyards is not because they just love messing around with corpses, although of course they do. It's uh, that they're fighting the vampire menace. Okay, That would be wonderful. Get uh, like that. That sounds like a – if Joe Lansdale hasn't written it already (laughs) – (laughs) <laughs> that would
1: be a, a terrific story, uh, right there. That is great. Yeah, Leatherface chainsawing off vampire heads. Yeah, um, turning into the oh, hero. Oh, here it is. Here it is. Bill Mosley, uh, Chop Top has metal plates in his neck under the skin, oh. which prevents him from being bitten and vamped himself. So they try to bite him, and they just scrape their teeth on metal. I love
0: it. And then you you kind of you also rewrite it to where Grandpa is not only the greatest killer that ever lived; he's the greatest
1: vampire killer. He is killer. Van Helsing. Yeah. Grandpa is is Abraham Van. Hell yeah, it looks old he enough to moved pull it off to the United States, and we, oh my god, this is so good! It writes itself. Okay, t- we we take back all the. It's free now. This is ours. It belongs <laughs> to us. Or I should be fair, Robert. It's yours. It's yours. No, no, no. We can we can do it. I
0: think we can do this, Joe. We just got to get. We got to get whoever owns the Texas Chainsaw Massacre rights to uh, see things our way.
1: Oh, I'm sure they'll just give them right up. <laughs>
0: All right, we have another bit of vampire um, uh, lore here from a listener. This comes to us from Joey in Kentucky. Joey writes, Hey, guys, I just finished listening to the first Vampire Clinic episode. And during the episode, you mentioned fun scientific explanations for vampirism in fiction. And I wanted to recommend Peeps by Scott Westerfield. In it, vampirism is a mind-altering parasite, and the story is told from the point of view of a typhoid Mary-type carrier of the parasite. Mm. It's a fun little story with some interesting uh, parasitology facts thrown in. I'd also like to thank you for all the great book recommendations on the show. Basically, every time one of you mentions a book, I write it down. I love Blindsight. Uh, that's the, the Peter Watts book. Mm-hmm. And I'm halfway through the Culture series. Uh, that, of course, is the, the Ian M. Banks series. And I've got about a dozen more on my reading list. Keep up the good work, Joey. I have not read that, but uh, thanks
1: for the recommendation, Joey. Yeah, I'm going to have to look that up too. All right. Now, technically, I think this was not Halloween monster content, but really it is. We got <laughs> quite a few good messages about monstrous squirrels this uh, this Halloween season. And so I think we should plow right into those. They, they fit, right? That, that's basically monster content.
0: Oh, yeah. And I imagine we're going to keep hearing about squirrels for some time. This really has – those episodes really struck a chord. Uh, like most recently on Twitter, somebody brought to, to my attention that the new Fallout
1: game, Fallout 76. Oh, oh I didn't know about that. It has radioactive squirrels in it. Nice. That attack you. Yes. Okay. Uh, yeah, people uh, like our, our social media feeds have turned at least half into people just adding us with squirrel stuff. Mm-hmm.
0: On the subject of squirrels, I don't recall which episode it was in which I did this. Maybe it was our listener mail Uh, Episode. But I asked about squirrels in
1: the works of J.R.R. Tolkien. I remember exactly why this came up. It came up because we mentioned that squirrels had been introduced outside of their native ranges and there were squirrels pretty much everywhere except Antarctica. Uh, And several listeners from New Zealand got in touch with us to Mm -hmm. say, uh uh, no squirrels in New Zealand. And so, of course, because the Lord of the Rings films were shot in New Zealand, you were asking, well, are there squirrels in Middle Earth? And oh boy, we got some Tolkien pedantry coming on. Uh, the topic of of the squirrels of Middle Earth. So
0: we're going to run through some of these uh, uh, and try to acknowledge everyone who uh, who chimed in. Patrick, for instance, writes uh, writes in and says there are squirrels in The Hobbit. When speaking <laughs> of the vileness of Mirkwood, Gandalf talks about black squirrels and other unclean beasts.
1: But black squirrels are not even mythical animals. That's just like there there are black squirrels. Yeah,
0: but I guess the whole thing is like you go into Merkwood. the first thing you notice is the squirrels are different this, yeah. in the
1: same way that uh, you know, the squirrels are a little bit different in uh, like the movie It Follows. Just northern uh, forest varieties, not southern assume, forest varieties. I assume, yeah, I'm assuming it's a, it's a different variety. Okay, this next message comes from Daniel. Daniel says, hello, I have an interesting perspective to follow up on your squirrel questions. Daniel, I think we'll be the judge of that. Um, (laughs) uh, About New Zealand and squirrels. I'm a U.S. citizen and I've been living in New Zealand for the past year. So I have huge exposure to squirrels in my past life. And my wife is actually a conservationist here. So she lets me know about all the difference in species. Not only that, but we recently watched Lord of the Rings in its entirety just before listening to the episode. That I can remember. The only reference of woodland creatures is Treebeard, the Ent, mentioning to Merry and Pippin how, uh, about how rats not shown climb his legs and cause terrible tickles. Hmm. But there aren't mentions of squirrels unless he doesn't understand the difference between rodents, which is very possible as he doesn't seem to understand the difference between hobbits and orcs. Huh. You remember that, yeah, like Marion so. Pippin, the the little hijinks hobbits climb up him, uh, the, like the Stoner Buddy comedy hobbits. Mm-hmm. They climb up him, and he's like, "Are you orcs?" Uh, okay. That's what I remember from the that's movie. in the movie. Yeah. Okay,
0: yeah, uh, my son and I had to pause on our uh, our reading of uh, the Lord of the Rings, so I don't recall from previous readings uh, how that actually
1: went down. Uh, Daniel continues, quote. Most of the rodents here are ferrets and hedgehogs, though I don't actually know if either of those qualify in New Zealand. Uh, I don't think they do. They are not Scuridae. That said, there is a quote from the books where Elrond mentions, Time was once when a squirrel could carry a nut from tree to tree from Rivendell to the great sea. I guess talking about when – how far the forests used to Ah. extend. Uh, So Daniel says, squirrels, they are canonical. If you want to follow up on the ramifications this has for the species on the islands of New Zealand, feel free to email back for more details. Uh, Well, thank you so much, Daniel. You know what? I'll grant you that was interesting. I thought so.
0: I like the idea that that so far we're learning that, yes, you have the black squirrels of Mirkwood, but then also uh, Elrond's bringing uh, up squirrels in a very nostalgic way, like the the old forest way. So perhaps the squirrels are just another thing that have been, uh, you know, darkened and uh, made perverse by uh, the influence of Sauron. All right. This next one comes to us from Kevin. Kevin says, I just finished uh, the Listener Mail episode of the podcast and wanted to assure you that Middle Earth definitely has squirrels. (laughs) I don't recall if there is any mention in The Lord of the Rings, but I do recall their mention in The Hobbit. I did a quick search on my Kindle and the word squirrels is used five times. (laughs) Of note are two quotes uh, bearing three of these instances in Chapter 8, Flies and Spiders. Quote, there were black squirrels in the wood. As Bilbo's sharp, inquisitive eyes got used to seeing things, he could catch glimpses of them whisking off in the path and scuttling behind tree trunks. A few pages later, they tried shooting at the squirrels and they wasted many arrows before they managed to bring one down on the path. But when they roasted it, it proved horrible to taste and they shot no more squirrels. And then uh, Kevin continues, it seems Tolkien's black squirrels are the darkest of skugs.
1: Now, wait a minute. I know why the squirrels of Mirkwood have black fur. This has got to be a case of uh, of like camouflage melanism, like uh, like the moths, the peppered moths mm-hmm. of uh, of like the UK. You know, when there was a lot of soot on the tree trunks, the moths darkened, so it would be harder to see them standing out against in contrast the tree trunks and the surfaces they sat on. Right, as the trunks darkened. Of course, in Merkwood, the trees are very dark, so the squirrels want to blend in so as not to be plucked off of the branches by spiders and eaten.
0: Hmm. All right. So, what what about the taste? What are they? taste so bad? Oh, uh,
1: just because all squirrels taste bad. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I haven't I've never eaten It has one. nothing to do with them being
0: from Mirkwood. I assumed two squirrels could probably taste good. Uh, didn't we hear from some people who'd eaten squirrels? Uh, I think we did, yeah. yeah. I mean, in the right stew, right? I mean, that's kind of the, uh, one assumes, one assumes.
1: Maybe this was just their mood affecting their perception of the taste of the squirrels. And we have one more here from Fred uh,
0: that writes in and says, great show. Question, are are squirrels mentioned in The Lord of the Rings? Yes. And then he uh, uh, he, uh, includes a quote here. Whether because of Strider's skill or for some other reason, they saw no sign and heard no sound of any other living thing all that day. Neither two-footed except birds, nor four-footed except one fox and a few squirrels. And Fred says the uh, uh, response, 10,000, I would imagine. Well, not quite 10,000, <laughs> but uh, you, he, you, you did add to our, our, our new collective understanding of, score, of the squirrels of Middle Earth.
1: I'm still grooving on my camouflage hypothesis. It, the gears are grinding in my head. Prove me wrong out there. <laughs> Prove me wrong. Well, on that note, we're going to leave the squirrels of
0: Mirkwood behind, and we're going to take one more break. But when we come back, more listener mail from October.
1: Now, this uh, piece of mail concerns our Vault episode about carnivorous plants. We talked about uh, – this was an episode we recorded a couple years ago, I think, about the like legends of human eating trees and stuff Mm -hmm. like that and how that connects to actual carnivorous plants. And so our uh, listener, Sean, got in touch to say, hi, Robert and Joe. My name is Sean and I'm a researcher studying angiosperm, flowering plant evolution and comparative genomics at the Liebens-Mack Institute at the University of georgia i've been listening to the podcast for the past year during my commute and have enjoyed every second and i wish i had found it earlier i just listened to the episode from the vault carnivorous plants and was intrigued because one of the grad students in the lab studies speciation hybridization and evolution of uh, saracenia pitcher plants Uh, i hope i said that right I find carnivorous plants fascinating due to the fact that carnivory in plants has evolved independently several times through convergent evolution, which I think is really cool and interesting. One thing that I was surprised that you guys didn't mention is uh, the fact that many carnivorous plants lure insects by reflecting UV light. Insects like ants and flies are sensitive to blue and violet light. We'll see these plants emitting a blue fluorescence and are lured toward them. The reason why is yet to be understood, but it is a cool predation strategy that's invisible to us humans. Uh, Sean also uh, offers that if we're ever interested in doing something on the evolution of flowering plants, uh, uh, we could uh, get in touch. But also – uh, Sean writes, furthermore, there's a lot of cool plant research, i.e. evolutionary biology, transgenics, plant pathogen interactions, and much more happening here in the plant biology department at UGA, and I'm willing to help you guys uh, get in contact with the professors who would share their research. Finally, I'd like to say thank you again for making my commute more enjoyable and keep up the great work. Well, thank you, Sean. Uh, yeah, maybe we should look into flowering plants sometime.
0: Yeah, and I and I love uh, the idea of dipping into more local talent. We've been trying to do more of that, uh, bring bringing experts on the show not via uh, telephone but actually get them in the studio and they're just there's so many great minds in the atlanta area we should do more of it all right at this point we're going to move on to some
1: listener mail that uh, is related to our episode the curse How about this one from Taylor? What do you think? Let's go for it. All right. So Taylor writes, in your episode about curses, you pondered whether or not there could be legal ramifications for uttering a curse on someone. In Canada, we actually have a law which would impact cursing someone in limited situations. Section 365 of the Criminal Code of Canada is entitled, Pretending to Practice Witchcraft. (laughs) It states – Uh, Everyone who fraudulently, A, pretends to exercise or use any kind of witchcraft, sorcery, enchantment, or conjuration, B, undertakes for this consideration to tell fortunes, or C, pretends from this skill in or knowledge of an occult or crafty science to discover where or in what manner anything that is supposed to have been stolen or lost may be found – is guilty of an offense punishable on summary conviction?
0: Oh, I already have so many questions about this um, <laughs> regarding like, what the difference is between practicing a religion and pretending
1: to practice a religion.
0: Uh-huh. So, so, but we'll, we'll wait to the end of the email to, to bring it all up.
1: OK. Quote. This law only applies if you are fraudulently doing an activity and therefore goes to the mens rea of the act, e.g. if you act as a psychic and you believe you are a psychic, then there is no crime. Whereas if you act as a psychic solely to take money from a believer, then you have committed a crime. How would you determine that? That would be so difficult. Um, Anyway, how would this apply to curses? I can think of two scenarios where this law may come up. Scenario number one, you, not believing in curses, know someone who has a strong irrational belief in curses. You do not like this person and want to cause ill will on them and despite not believing in curses, you cast one on this believer. It causes a severe negative downturn in this person's mental well-being, physical well-being or their financial well-being because, of course, they must find someone to dispel this curse. You will be guilty under section 365 of the Criminal Code of Canada. Uh, maybe if you like write out a manifesto stating all your plans, I don't know. Yeah, you would have to, they'd have to catch your, um,
0: your villainous uh, admission of guilt on, on tape or something.
1: Yeah, you have a bond villain monologue. Yeah. Of course, it would make it not efficacious, right, if you uh, if you actually monologue to the bond you were cursing. That's true. Uh, scenario number two, you not believing in curses once again, accept funds from someone to dispel a curse which, uh, which this person believes has fallen on them. This person may be working in conjunction with the you in scenario one to extort money from this person. In this scenario, once again, there is clear fraud on your part, and you will be guilty under Section 365 of the Criminal Code of Canada. Of course, this requires very specific circumstances, and if in either of the above scenarios you in fact believe in curses, then no crime has been committed. Seems like this law would never be used for curses, right? Well, someone was charged under Section 365 in 2012 in Toronto for charging thousands of dollars to remove a family curse, and uh, Taylor links to a source. Slightly different, but a man in 2017 was charged under this section for charging six figures to remove an evil spirit from a family member. And then uh, Taylor links to another source. And finally, in 2015, the Edmonton police force had to release a statement warning people not to fall for paranormal frauds, which includes curse removal. I thought you would find this interesting, and I do not know if there would be any comparables in the U.S., uh well there I mean there are certainly in the u s uh, fraudulent predatory practitioners of a occult and crafty sciences uh,
0: yeah you can you can turn on the TV and see them every day,
1: yeah, yeah uh, the mediums who will like charge you a premium to talk to your dead family members and stuff that i tra- i mean I, I try not to harp too much or be like hating on people who believe in things that I don't think there's any good evidence for. But that is one that really just makes me mad. Like the, you know, selling access to dead family members and stuff like that. That I, I, I get kind of furious when I read about that. Oh, yeah. I mean this is the kind of thing that uh, Harry Houdini uh, took issue with.
0: Yeah. I mean because really we're talking about the difference between practicing a religion or practicing some sort of uh, supernatural belief system and – simply preying upon those who do, yeah. um, you know, going after them, trying to milk them for uh, for money. Um, and, and clearly, well, one of those two scenarios is definitely bad. Yeah. I, I think, you know, anybody out there who is just going out there to uh, to manipulate people and prey upon whatever kind of superstitious ideas they might already have, uh, you know, that's that's deplorable. And that, that should be punishable under criminal codes. But where it gets away from me is the idea of like, well, I can certainly – Partake in religion and partake in in rituals of that that faith or belief system without completely believing in it, e- yeah. even
1: b- want, struggling to believe in it. You know, people do people that every do day. This, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. A lot of the people going to church, sitting in the pew next to you, might not really believe everything, but they're seeing some kind of value in what they're doing.
0: Right, and then ultimately, like we discussed, like, well, how different is a curse than a prayer, you know? Yeah. It depends how you're you're framing it, I guess. I've heard some, some prayers before that sound a bit like curses. Yes. Uh, you know, and, uh, and uh, you know, where would that fall under uh, such a ruling? I don't know. It's just all interesting food for thought. This is a really interesting uh, listener mail that we received.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, again, with the, like, selling access to dead family members through a, you know, a spirit medium or something like this, you never— it's hard to prove fraud in those cases like, the, like Taylor mentioned in the email. You need specific kinds of evidence and stuff that probably aren't going to be there most of the time. Though then again, I think about the fact that if you're going to be like a spirit medium – you're probably going to be better at it if you know you were a fraud because then you can consciously practice cold reading techniques and trickery and all that. Whereas you act, if you actually believe you have power, it seems like you'd be less likely to produce really impressive results. Do you know what I mean?
0: Yeah. Now, something worth exploring in a future episode would be to what extent do we have that space between though? Yeah. Where someone is utilizing these various tricks but doing so from a place of belief – you know, like you're essentially going in, out, out there and doing a cold reading. But but what if you're doing it and you're believing that these are the, like the tools of reaching out into the ether and, you know, um, and, and and connecting with the spirit realm? Like it seems like it's possible. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I haven't read anything yet to, uh, to, to really answer that for
1: me. Well, yeah, people's powers of self-justification are incredibly powerful. <laughs> yeah.
0: At any rate, uh, I hope uh, Taylor is considering a future – yeah, in Canadian curse law, uh, because uh,
1: <laughs> can you specialize I, in this? It sounds like, like a
0: great um, uh, CBC show. I would watch, uh, you know, the Canadian curse
1: law attorney, curse law uh, practice uh, yeah. show. Yeah, Abraham Van Helsing, attorney at law. <laughs> now speaking, no, that that wouldn't be it. Would it would, what? Who, who? Who gets rid of curses?
0: Uh, I'm not sure offhand. Um, yeah. Daniel Webster, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Um, At any rate, speaking of Van Helsing, though, uh, we did have uh, someone write in, Rolf, who uh, wrote in and said, hey, guys, love the show. Uh, Mike Mignola, the uh, creator of Hellboy, uh, did some of the character designs on the Dracula movie. The uh, armor is classic Mignola. And if you're looking for some really cool aquatic stuff, uh, check out the comic Low by Rick uh, Remender and Greg Toccini. All the best, Rolf.
1: I'm not familiar with Mike Mignolia. Oh, yeah. Mignola. Mignola? Mignola? Mignola. Mignola, I think. Uh, Mike Mignola, I believe, is how I'd read that. Uh, But I do love that armor. I think he's referring to the armor we talked about in – Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula movie. Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula. Yes. Uh, The the, the, the Coppola one where he wears this like muscle – looks like exposed raw muscle in the armor and it's so good.
0: Yeah, I love Mike's work. Um, I I used to read Hellboy. I read the first uh, several volumes of that. Uh, The Conqueror Worm being my my favorite of those. But then his work also shows up in a number of different – uh, film projects. Uh, he worked, uh, uh, of course, most notably he worked with uh, Guillermo del Toro on the Hellboy movies. Oh, okay. But his work also shows up, I think, in some other uh, del Toro films as well, uh, you know, uh, set and monster design,
1: that kind of thing. I, I only saw the first Hellboy movie, but I remember thinking it had some great design in it.
0: Yeah, the second one has some tremendous design in it as well. You got, you know, evil fairy kings and queens, that sort of thing. Nice. Uh, there's, there's some, some wonderful elements in it.
1: Okay, well, does that wrap it up for today? Uh, I think so. Uh, Let's see. I have
0: one last little bit of email here that was just a general um, fun email that I just want to read real quick. Uh, This comes to us from Chris. Uh, I've listened to almost... Uh, Every podcast of you two Christian and Julie as well Needless to say I like the ideas Your podcast churns out At a truly staggering rate Despite the colossal amount Of time researching Must be put into it Uh, A mighty uh, Commendable thing It is indeed My favorite episodes Are definitely the ones Regarding potentially upsetting Or highly stirring Philosophical subject matter The Boltzmann Brain episode The Mind Flayer episode The Bicameral Mind Anything with Borges R. Scott Baker uh, All ought to be put On a greatest hits CD Okay When I'm not feeling well I put on my head Phones, turn on some stuff to blow your mind and start relaxing. He goes on to say, "I've been listening for a very long time and I've never written in, but just wanted to tell uh, you folks your work and consideration is appreciated." Right now, I'm reading uh, the Three Body Problem by si Cixin Liu, uh, Preacher by Gareth Ennis and Steve Dillon, and Altruism by uh, Matthew Ricard. I'm not familiar with that one.
1: That sounds familiar. I think that's a book I've seen referenced in, ah. around.
0: Excellent. Well, I'll have to I'll have to check that one out as well. I did read Preacher back in the day, but it's been a very long
1: time. Glad you're reading Three Body Problem, Chris. I hope you enjoy it.
0: All right. Well, there we go. Hopefully, we've gotten a lot of the the the, the supernatural um, uh, bugs out of uh, out of our mailbot here.
1: Well, now that we've read Taylor's email, I'm wondering if we actually should have paid that Canadian machine exorcist. That, that <laughs> may have been a bad call.
0: Do yeah. you think
1: we got scammed?
0: We might have been scammed. I'm not sure. But uh, I think he's doing better. I think he's doing better. So I think we're in a, in a, in a place where we can continue now. We, can actually, we actually have the, the, the courage to press on through the holidays and uh, continue to bring some great episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind and some great episodes of Invention as well. In the meantime, check out StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you'll find uh, all the podcast episodes, links out to our various social media accounts, including Facebook, where we have that discussion module, a great place to interact uh, with other listeners uh, and and also with the hosts here. Again, this is StuffToBlowYourMind discussion module on Facebook. Uh, Also, StuffToBlowYourMind.com has a link to our merchandise store where you'll find all those cool designs we've been talking about.
1: Big thanks, as always, to our wonderful audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like like to get in touch with us to let us know feedback on this episode or any other, to uh, suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hi, let us know where you listen from, how you found out about the show, all that kind of stuff, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.